first lesson is from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12, and verses 19. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. We love because he first loved us. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. The Lord be with you and with thy spirit. The holy gospel according to St. Mark in the 12th chapter, beginning at the 28th verse. Glory be to thee, O Christ. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The Gospel of Christ. Praise be to thee, O Christ. We have uh, Tim preaching uh, today, but uh, he let me know yesterday morning that he is feeling unwell, and so he has come to record his sermon, so we'll be tuning in on the screen for what uh, the Lord has brought us in his word. As I begin... Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, through which you speak to us and reveal yourself to us. I pray in light of that truth that I would decrease and Jesus would increase. That his people gathered here would be edified and that he would be glorified. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Love God. Grow together. Serve our world. About nine years ago, the wardens and I, with the Bible in one hand, and our history, the story that God was knitting into our community and the other, prayerfully reflected on who God was calling us to be as a church, how we could grab a hold of the fullness of life that God offers us in Jesus. And part one of the fruits of that process was a statement, a statement that would guide our life together, a statement that could be easily understood by someone at any stage of a spiritual journey. And it was this, love God, grow together, serve our world. Now, September is a season of new beginnings. The students and teachers are back in the classroom. Summer holidays have come to a close, and we're back to those more regular rhythms of life and work. And a new season of church life begins. And as a new beginning, this September feels a whole lot weightier because for two and a half years, our life as church, in fact, all of our lives have been disrupted. So the desire was to begin this new season of fresh, reorienting ourselves to the full life that we can have in Jesus as we love God, grow together, and serve our world. Each week for the next three, we will look at each of those phrases in turn. Today, love God. What does that mean? And what will the fruit of that be in our lives? Now, many of you, I suspect, are familiar with the Alpha Course. We offer it here every fall. A course that some 24 million people in 112 different languages worldwide have taken. It's a course that allows people to reflect on matters of life and faith and meaning. And if you've ever seen the advertisements for the course, you'll remember that they often center around existential questions. Questions like, why am I here? What is the meaning of life? And is there more to life than this? I would suspect that those are questions that all of us reflect upon. We yearn for an answer, a sense of purpose to direct our lives. Now, the answer our culture often gives to those existential questions is that the purpose, the meaning of life is to be happy. And indeed, that motivation seems to sit under most, if not all, of the decisions that we make in life. Decisions of career, relationship, what to do with our time, what to do with our money. And yet, as we seek to lay a hold of that happiness, it is often fleeting, slipping through our fingers like sand, leaving that existential question intact. Is there more? to life than this. Now, Jesus was once asked such an existential question. 
We heard it in our reading from Mark chapter 12. As a scribe, a teacher of the law comes to Jesus and asks, which commandment is the most important of all? That really doesn't sound like an existential question, right? More like a theological one. But we have to hear that question from the scribe's perspective. You see, the scribe has given himself over to the study of the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. And his commitment to the law has led him to some core convictions that humanity has been created by God. And as created beings, our creator holds the key to our purpose. And the law is the means by which God communicates that purpose. And so there was a question that was hotly debated. Which is the greatest commandment? What is the law really after? What unifies, provides a foundation for all of it? And so for the scribe to ask, which commandment is the most important, is to ask, why was I created? What is the meaning of my existence? Now, there was a a spectrum of responses to that question, most seeking to whittle the law down to something attainable. But here we have Jesus' response. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Why was I created? What is the purpose of our existence? Love. Love, Jesus says. Love God. Love others. I suspect that resonates deeply with us, right? Love is as vital to our being as is oxygen to our lungs. When we know that we are loved and accepted, we thrive, we flourish. There is no greater joy and satisfaction than to be in a loving relationship, whether that be a community or a family or a friendship or a marriage. Many of the ills that plague human society can track their source back to an absence of love. Mother Teresa led an order of nuns whose primary purpose was to serve the most impoverished, hungry, downtrodden people in the world in places like India. And she was once asked, if that is the intent of your order, why is it that you're beginning chapters in the U.S. and Australia and the U.K. where there's so much wealth? Wouldn't it be better to set up in places where the need is greater? To which she responded, I'm establishing there. Because in places like America, People are suffering from terrible loneliness, despair, and hatred because they are hungry for and have forgotten love. Why was I created? What is the meaning of life? Love. Love God. Love others. It's a beautiful and glorious answer to the scribe's question. It deeply resonates with the human condition. And yet, and yet, 
The response to Jesus is striking. By the end of the conversation, we're told that no one dared to ask him any more questions ever again. What? Wouldn't you want to know more? The response of the scribe illuminates. I think you might be right, Jesus. That resonates with my own understanding of the law. But then he adds, that is much more or exceeds whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, we could hear that as the scribe saying, love is to be desired above religious ritual and practice. Yes, but I don't think that is what the scribe is saying. You see, the scribe, like everyone else, expected Jesus to whittle the law down to something that was attainable. For the scribe's mind, this is how life works. God wants us to live the good life, to live in obedience to the law, to try our best. But when we fail, you can always go to the temple and offer sacrifices to make up the difference. I can do 80% on my own, and the other 20%, I can get covered by a sacrifice. It's all good. I think he's saying that. I think you might be right, Jesus. We were created for love. A love of God that takes a hold of every aspect of our being. A love of others that seeks to meet their needs with as much intensity as I would meet my own. But if you are right, there is no way I can live up to that. And the difference exceeds what any sacrifice you're offering can cover. I'm done for. To which Jesus responds, you aren't far from the kingdom. And then surprisingly, he just leaves them there. No more conversation. There's no, let me tell you what you're missing. There's no, let me tell you about God's lavish love, forgiveness, and grace, which will ultimately be displayed in what I'm about to do on a cross. He just ends the conversation there. The scribe left distraught, stupefied. Years ago, I was meeting with a young man named Antoine to read the Bible. He arrived one day for our meeting, distressed, shattered, Make it stop, he said. Make it stop. Throughout the week, God had been revealing to him his holiness, his perfection, the life for which we were created. And in light of that, God was showing Antoine in sharp contrast his own sin, his own falling short of God's glory. And it was agonizing. Make it stop, he said. Make it stop. I probed the edges of what he was feeling with a few questions, only to sense that this indeed was of God. Not a feeling that should be avoided or escaped, but rather embraced. For resting in that place is a necessary part of God's transforming work. The conviction of sin, the conviction of a failure to love is Vital for the healing of our hearts. Let me put it this way. 
I would suspect many of us, sadly, have been in a place where we have seen the mental or physical decline of a loved one. They don't see it in themselves, and as a result, they're, they're not going to the doctor. They're, they're not taking the necessary steps. They're not looking for help. And so we first, in love, need to convince them of their need. Those are not easy conversations. Hard to say, hard to hear, harder still to accept, but absolutely necessary. If there will be any change, any healing, any wholeness. In love, Jesus has brought the scribe to just such a place. In love, he seeks to bring all of us to such a place, not a one and done, but continually. For before Jesus can root us in the good news of forgiveness and new life, he must first bring us to see our need. Before he can comfort us with his grace, he must first disturb us by showing us the beauty of life for which we were created, but we fall far short of. And in that place, he affirms us as he affirmed the scribe, you aren't far from the kingdom. You aren't far when you see your inability to love. You aren't far when you see that you cannot fulfill love by your own strength. You're not far when you see that you'll need more than offerings and sacrifices to cover it over. You aren't far from the kingdom. From such a place, a yearning begins to grow. A yearning for forgiveness. A yearning for our lives to be marked by such a love. But where do we take such a yearning? For Jesus has left the scribe not quite there. Or has he? Has Jesus not left open to him the door of the kingdom? Indeed, he had. I want us to notice how Jesus answers the scribe's question. The most important command is love God. No, that's not how he answers. The most important command is love others. No, that's not how he answers. The most important command is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is the most important command. Let me put it this way. What is the most common command in the Bible? The thing that God is reminding his people of more than anything else, the thing that his loving anger burns most against, for it is utterly destructive to the human heart. Idolatry. The worship of other gods. You see, the nations around Israel had a pantheon of different gods. Each god was responsible for a different area of life. And if you wanted to maximize the productivity of your land, for example, well, there's a god to worship for that. If you wanted to bring success to your business, well, there was a god to worship for that. If you wanted to see your love life flourish, well, there was a god to worship for that. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus is quoting the Shema. 
A prayer from Deuteronomy 6 that began every day, that was worn in boxes on the forehead or on the wrists of the faithful, that was nailed to their doorposts as a constant reminder in the midst of the idolatry all around them, there is but one God, and that God is Lord over all, and he alone should you worship. Now you might say, how is such a command even relevant today? I I mean, idolatry isn't a problem that it once was. Everyone that I know seems to believe in God or doesn't believe in God. I remember hearing a story about an American pastor who went to India. And while he was there, he was staying with an Indian pastor. And as he was walking the streets of India, he was struck that on every street corner, there was a shrine set up to worship a different deity. He went home to speak to the Indian pastors. How do you minister in the midst of so much idolatry? To which the Indian pastor responded, Really? How do you minister in the midst of so much idolatry? Whenever I go over to the West, I'm struck that you build these billion-dollar temples to the worship of your sports stars. And then I go into your living rooms, and all of your furniture is arranged around a television where you display images of your music or movie stars. The tallest buildings in your cities show what you worship. The tallest buildings in your city grace with the symbols of your banks. Does not Western culture worship the idols of wealth and consumption? Idolatry. The worship of other gods may look vastly different than it did in ancient Palestine, but it is still a reality, a reality that is deeply damaging to the human heart. The late American writer David Foster Wallace, not himself a religious person, once gave a commencement speech to Kenyon College in which he said, everybody worships. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much everything else will eat you alive. Worship money, things. If there's where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough, never feel like you have enough. Worship your body, beauty, sexual allure. You'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. Worship power. You'll end up feeling weak and afraid. And you'll need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart. And you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Everybody worships, said Wallace. The only choice you get is what you worship. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Worship him alone. Love him with all that you are, heart, soul, mind, strength, says Jesus. So what are we to do? Conjure up? The feelings, the words, the actions of worship? No, not at all. For when Jesus quotes the Shema, he's bringing the context with him. And in the verses surrounding it, it says, if your child comes to you and asks, 
Well, what's the meaning of all these laws and statutes? You should respond, well, we have to obey or God's going to get us. No, no, that's not what it says. But we have to obey so God will bless us. No, that's not what it says. Instead, it says, God rescued us from slavery in Egypt, brought us out with a mighty hand, and gave us the land that he promised. That is the meaning of these laws and statutes. God did not come to the Israelites in slavery and said, oh, I've got a deal for you. Here are my commands. Obey them, and I'll rescue you from slavery. No. By grace, he rescued them from slavery and then called them to a new way of living. In other words, our worship, our love of God is a response. It flows from his grace, love, and forgiveness ultimately displayed in Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus leaving the scribe not quite there drives him more and more to come to know the living God. As our reading from 1 John put it, we love because he first loved us. As we know his love in Jesus, the only fitting response will be worship, worth-ship seeing what he's worth and giving him what he's worth, loving him with all that we are, heart, soul, mind, and strength. So what about the love of others? Well, for that, we've we got to try really hard, right? No. That too flows from our worship. It was the Anglican scholar N.T. Wright who wrote, one of the primary laws of human life is that you become what you worship. Those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it and treat other people as creditors, debtors, partners, customers, instead of human beings. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it, their preferences, practices, past histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sexual objects. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of it and treat other people either as collaborators, competitors, or pawns. You become what you worship, which is exactly what Jesus is affirming when he says, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. A phrase that comes to us from Leviticus 19, which is a, a chapter of laws that seem to cover a whole host of different topics, but one phrase holds it all together. I am the Lord your God. Leave the edges of your field unharvested to give to the poor. I am the Lord your God. Pay fair wages to your workers. I am the Lord your God. Don't take vengeance or bear a grudge. I am am the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord your God. What's this telling us? Do this because I'm God. No. It's telling us that when we live this way, we are reflecting the character of our Lord God. We are becoming what we worship. It was Augustine who wrote, Love God and do what you like. Love God and do what you like. We become 
what we worship. We become what we love. Now, what does that mean practically? Well, let me put it this way. If you're seeing an absence of love in your community, your family, your own heart, your relationships, the primary question that we need to ask ourselves is what are we ascribing ultimate worth to? Just who or what are we worshiping? For from a worship of the living God in Jesus, love flows. Some of you are struggling with bitterness and anger and a hard heart born of unforgiveness. Yes, repent. Yes, commit to forgiveness. But ultimately, behold his lavish forgiveness of you in Jesus. For there you will find the resources to forgive. We love because he first loved us. Some of us are despondent, feeling as if we have no value. Forget self-esteem. Forget positive self-talk. Behold his love. You were chosen by him before the foundation of the world. You were adopted as his child. And in Jesus, his word over, is, over you is, I love you. I delight in you. We love because he first loved us. It was Richard Loveless who wrote, If we start each day, with our personal security not resting in the accepting love of God and the sacrifice of Christ, we are inevitably moved to discouragement and apathy. We won't love. But the faith, the gospel faith that is able to warm itself at the fire of God's love and what Jesus has done for us, instead of having to steal love and acceptance from all other sources, like our idols, is the very root of peace. Go to this fire. It is merry. It is bright. So come, little tea. Let us worship. Let us gather together regularly under God's word, in song, in prayer, at table, to warm ourselves at the fire of God's love that we may become what we worship, love as he first loved us. For that is our created purpose. And that is what we mean by love God. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.